Hello and welcome to Healthy Mind, Healthy Life with your host Avik. This podcast is all about exploring the latest research, sharing personal stories and providing personal tips for improving our mental health and well-being. Each episodes will be joined by experts in the field of mental health as well as individuals who have experienced the transformative power of a healthy mind firsthand. Together we will dive into a range of topics from managing stress and anxiety to building resilience and cultivating happiness. So, join us on this journey to discover new ways to take care of our minds, bodies and souls and let's work together to create a healthier, happier world one episode at a time. So, let's get started. Hello and welcome to another episode of Healthy Mind Healthy Life the podcast that is dedicated to exploring strategies and insights for cultivating mental well-being and fostering harmonious relationships so i'm your host avik and today we have a very special guest joining us please welcome suzanne p horton so she is yeah so she is a licensed marriage and family therapist with a wealth of experience in working with troubled teens and their families so so suzanne like your extensive background as a former director of a therapeutic boarding school and your work as a family therapist has undoubtedly equipped you with profound insights into the challenges uh, families face in our model and um, the modern and distracted world so can you can you share a bit about your journey and what exactly led you to specialize in this important work yeah good question thank you for having me by the way this is a great opportunity um i would say what led me there it was a midlife career change for sure i was teaching adolescence um you know confirmation at a catholic church you know as a volunteer mother and i came in contact with teaching adolescents for the first time i had been a designer i was a undergraduate bfa student graduate um and i studied design and i had done that as a career so when i stumbled on this as a volunteer position um one of the kids in the class was a friend with my daughter who was also in the class and he became um very um was having a tough time and and became suicidal called my daughter one night and you know said that you know he wanted to kill himself and i asked she came to me obviously worried and i said will he talk to me and i ended up you know spending the night with him it was a you know a freshman in high school so around a 13 or 14 year old boy mm-hmm. and i just knew i knew at that moment that you know I could help with this stuff and I was connected to this age group and you know if when and if you read my book you'll see why because that was the probably the most challenging season of my life my own adolescence and so we tend to um find our calling if you will through the tougher periods of our lives where we survived right that tends to be where we end up serving in, in the world so in my case it was it it clarified over time that that's really what it was but in that moment you know of really changing the trajectory of that child's life i learned 
this was important work. It was needed work. Um, and I went back to school and, you know, got my proper education and my license. And I went to school. I, I did my clinical internship at a therapeutic boarding school in Massachusetts. And the whole entire time I was there, I was like, I can do that. There's, there's better ways. There's <laughs> like, I can do a better job of this. I want to do a better job of this. I want to change this the way this is done. And um, my husband at that time was at a place of transition in his life. Long story short, we were going to build and develop our own school. And we stumbled on the internet on a school that was being sold in Maine. And we ended up going up there and falling in love with the program, which was in its infancy. It was only five years old at that time. And um, there was a clinical director in place. There was an educational director. And I honestly went in there and just became a sponge um, and learned from them and experienced um, years, years of interaction with families in crisis that were sending their kids to us for something like nine months to a year to find their way and get reconnected. And in that experience, um, I just saw patterns. I saw things that worked, things that didn't work, um, reasons for why kids ended up there, um, you know, and, and how to heal that piece, how to heal that connection. And so a lot of my work um, stems from that. And then Transitioning out of that position, which I just did a year ago, I went into private practice in the public sector and kind of put my name out there as a family therapist and that I would go into your home and work with your family in your home. And that was very different and new, right, in terms of therapy. And, you know, I would meet with each member individually the first time I was there. And it was like a two and a half hour initial session. And then I would come back with the family and I started teaching the strategies and the ideas that I taught at the therapeutic boarding school. And, you know, it was sort of outside of the, what I called the container or the captive audience, so to speak. And what I found is that these families were responding to this, this work, these strategies, and they thought they were, you know, just, just so effective when they started using them. So that's what led to the book. And I wrote the book, uh, Raising a Resilient Family, based on, you know, the actual strategies that I used um, with real families, you know, um, in crisis, but then, you know, families that just wanted to prevent the disconnect from happening. So I've come up with a lot of, you know, what I call user-friendly <laughs> ideas and strategies um, that families and parents can use with their own kids in their homes without having to go to a therapist necessarily. No. So... I know that's the long-winded story, but that's how it all happened. Wow, that's, yeah. that's something great. So, so uh, yes, about your book also. So your book, uh, Raising a Resilient Family, How to um, Create a Strong Connection and Communication in a Deeply Distracted World. So which delves into uh, these important topics. So could you uh, give our listeners a glimpse into what they can expect to discover within this within its pages. Yeah, each chapter, um, you know, I start out with accountability, creating accountability. And the real underlying theme of the book is about how we as parents need to become more self-aware 
right? We need to look in the mirror first and foremost and become healthy, whole human beings before we can parent effectively. And of course, that happens over a lifetime. However, there are ways that we can prevent a disconnect when we're bringing our own, you know, issues, let's say, personal issues to the relationship with kids. And I, I do talk about that quite a bit in the book. Um, you know, for example, when your child's upset and you want you want to go right to fixing and rescuing, you know, take the time to see to at least look in the mirror and say, what have how have I maybe role modeled this behavior? Um, maybe how have I contributed to this disconnect? Um, and how does it maybe connect to some of my early issues in life? Those things need to at least be considered when there's drama in a family, because usually there's um, a lot of roles being played when drama is happening. And we all get into old roles and old habits that we played as children in our, our own families of origin. And we bring those to our to our new families, the families that we're raising and creating. So I, the book does have this underlying theme of looking at that piece as a possibility in addition to what's happening with your child. Mm -hmm. Okay, okay, understood. So I, so I talk about accountability, listening, listening and applying feedback, trauma traps. There's a whole chapter on trauma because I, I really believe that a lot of trauma goes un, unhealed and unresolved, shows up in the body, gets triggered, and we have irrational behaviors as a result. And those behaviors are hard to understand in the present moment until we look at the potential trauma that may have pre-existed in the and in, in getting to that and opening it up and healing it is how we we get rid of the, you know, the residue in our bodies and the triggers that go with it. Um, and a lot of a lot of parents don't recognize trauma as, when it shows up in behavior. They, they go right to what's wrong with my child? You know, what, what can I do to fix my child in the moment? Well, there could be some really deep damage in there around, you know, being hurt or bullied or separated somehow or rejected or humiliated early in life that that parent doesn't even know about. So there's there's those connections that I talk about in the book. And I've done some incredible work with younger, you know, younger kids that are, you know, stuck in, in anxiety where they can't function, you know, in school and in life. And we've gone into that inner child work where we, you know, you kind of go back mm -hmm. and you feel those feelings as a older, more, you know, contained child, a more whole child. And you rescue that child from that incident, you know, in a relaxed state. And that that work is, you know, when I say this in the book, it's almost like a miraculous experience to watch the healing that goes on in that in that kind of work. So I recommend, you know, parents that do find that their children have been traumatized early on, especially significant traumas like, you know, sexual trauma, for example, that work is compelling and it does it does heal if you find, you know, people that are that are, you know, that specialize are specialized and trained in it. So EMDR and inner inner child work or trauma trauma-informed therapists all do that kind of work. Um, but I talk a lot about the victim loop as a foundational piece in dysfunction in a family. Somebody is in the victim loop when there's 
drama going on or, or crisis in the family, which means somebody's in denial of their part, the part they're playing, blaming and shaming others, you know, and sometimes it's the identified child or the child in the family with the most issues pointing fingers outward. You know, it's it's your fault. It's this teacher's fault. It's because of this situation that I did that inappropriate thing, whatever the case may be. Um, and they stay in this loop, you know, and that's, you know, all the all the kids that came to the therapeutic boarding school started out in this victim loop. And I always ask parents, you know, because I would always bring the parents in, you know, a month or two after their child had arrived. And we would do these groups on and I would educate them on what the victim loop looks like, you know, denial, ignoring, blaming, shaming, not asking for help, hiding. A lot of kids hide today. And so I would bring up the fact that it's possible that the parents were role modeling this. So it's possible that the parent was in the victim loop and teaching the child to do the same, you know, when they had to deal with difficult things, they went right to ignoring, denying, blaming everyone else around them, you know, that that can be a learned habit of being and thinking. And so it was interesting because one weekend, and I, I write about this in the book, I asked, are there any parents in the room that feel like they were stuck in the victim loop too? And, you know, it was so enlightening because one of the parents who happened to be a doctor, she gets in there and she says, you know, my child was playing video games 12, 15 hours a day, and I just kept ignoring it. Oh, he's having fun. Oh, he's talking on his headphones. So he's socializing. All of the justifications that go with that. And it just got worse. You know, peeing in cups. So he didn't have to leave the game in his room. Mm -hmm. Refusing to go to school, ultimately. Disengaging socially from friends, family, and ultimately his parents. And finally... <laughs> She started to recognize, so that brings you up to an accountability place where you recognize what's going on and you make, you take action, you own your part. And she, you know, she talked openly about like, I, I was just completely ignoring and denying this problem existed. And until I looked at it and saw that I was doing that, I, there was never going to be any changes in that behavior of a child's life. And, you know, so that's that's what I talk about, how that victim loop is really where parents and families get stuck a lot. And it isn't until some it's usually a crisis, unfortunately. And, and what I like to why I like to teach that loop is to create self-awareness around it to see, are you operating in that loop as a family, as a parent? You know, is one of your children operating in that loop? So we need to interrupt it. We need to. Um, create accountability by creating self-awareness first and foremost as a parent and then listening and applying feedback you know because that that ultimately if you you can hear feedback but until you apply it you know it really doesn't have any effect right. and that's when you, the change starts to occur so I you know I do a whole chapter on listening because I think listening is an art <laughs> you know it's really you're a very good listener by the way <laughs> if I can say that. Um, but most teenagers aren't, right? Yeah. And so um, that's, that's you know, a really key com component to parenting is when your child comes home from school and, you know, you've got you've to carve out that intentional time where you're present. You know, when you're, don't just say, how was school? <laughs> You're not going to say, fine. You know, 
I, I, you know, you've got to have questions that lead somewhere. So, you know, anything new happened today? What was the best part? I always do that when they say fine. I, well, what was fine about it? What was the best part? And inevitably, over time, if you create a consistent check-in, a daily check-in, you're going to see that child start to share the tougher stuff. And this is the real key to maintaining a connection. If you start this when your child's, you know, pre-pubescent, pre-teen, you know, when they're little and they come home from school and you have this ritual where you connect and you you really talk and you really listen, you know, you start to you start to see those tough conversations emerging as they get into 12, 13. And that's when you have to be there emotionally. That's when you have to make the emotional connection, meaning not first and foremost, you have to name the emotion that you're seeing. So a child comes home and starts complaining and, you know, talking about maybe the teacher's targeting them, right? And that's why they're failing or that's why they're not doing well. Usually there's something else going on. But in that case, instead of going, well, which is a natural parent inclination, what did you do <laughs> you know, to create that this, you know, that problem? Yes. Or how can, you know, I'll talk to the parent, I mean, the teacher tomorrow, I'll fix it, right? Rescue, the rescue, or blaming. So right there, right there, the parents role modeling a lack of accountability by doing that. So my highest, most <laughs> most important recommendation that I make, and parents, if you're listening, listen to this piece. It's so important. Name that emotion. So I see this makes you angry. Or I see this frustrates you. I see this makes you sad if they're tearing up in any way. You're seeing whatever emotion you are seeing in that moment. Name it. Empathize. So I'm really sorry. That must be hard. Mm -hmm. It's that simple. It's, it, it sounds crazy, but you will see a shift in that child if you do that. And then the next step is, what are you going to do to change that? So you're empowering that child to sort through that issue instead of fixing it for them. And you can start doing this right away, right away. What are some things? And keep asking questions. Try really hard, parents, not to give advice, especially to a teen. Let them figure it out. Encourage them to figure it out with clarifying questions. You know, keep asking the questions and you will get answers. Um, and that's what cultivates that deep inner, I can do this. I can figure it out when parents are regularly practicing and the other thing it does is it it connects a child to their feelings. They can start, A, feeling their feelings and knowing what they are, which is there's a serious disconnect going on there today. And they they see that you you see them, that you're they are being seen by you. And that's going to keep you in that strong, resilient connection if you continue to practice that over time. And they'll keep coming to you when they're, you know, my kids are all young adults and they still come to me. And I, I still practice that exact same thing because it's what they need. It's what we all need, by the way. Your spouse, by the way, <laughs> will benefit from this too. Um, any, any significant relationship in your life is more connected by that, that emotional current than anything else. Exactly. So, <laughs> that's a that's a great thing you have explained. 
Yeah. So uh, I have I have another thing in my mind. Like, how does technology and the digital age impact the family dynamics and the communication? Say that one more time. So, uh, how does the technology and the digital age impact the uh, family dynamics and their communication? Yeah. So the digital, the onslaught of <laughs> social media um, has, especially if it's introduced preteen, for example, um, it, it has, you know, and most of the parents I'm sure know this, it has the ability to create what's called a dopamine release, meaning a nice feeling. It makes you feel good when you're playing a video game, um, when you're you know, in simulated combat and you're winning, for example, all it's kind of much like gambling. If you know the science behind gambling, it releases this soothing kind of feeling and kids are getting addicted to that coupled with as they're developing emotions, which goes on in adolescence, right? That prepubescent emotional kind of <laughs> deluge that happens gets very confused with you know, when it's especially when it's uncomfortable. So a child is in a social situation where they feel anxious, they're going to look down at their phone to relieve themselves, to numb that, that anxious feeling or that feeling of being left out of something, for example. And what's happening because of that, because it's, you know, become this socially accepted way of communicating and being in the world. Parents are texting kids, kids are texting parents, you know, and in the, those exchanges, first of all, emotions are getting confused, right? Because sarcasm maybe shows up as a different thing when it's texted, for example, and it, you know, creates a different feeling for a child. Just one example and same with the parent. So the, the emotional piece, the connection is, is being blurred a little bit there. But what's really vital and important is that that child is not learning to self-soothe, you know, in the way we did before social media. We didn't have this little device that we carry around with us to say, to say, oh, I'm just going to go stand in this corner and bond with my Instagram. So I look busy and I look like, I don't know, somebody cares about me maybe. Um, in those moments of, of young adolescent development, that's a big numbing device. That's a big escape from the normal process of having to go into those uncomfortable moments in the cafeteria and find a seat you know, and, you know, find a way to connect. Um, that's not happening anymore. That's why, you know, anybody in America especially can go to a restaurant and see the entire table of teens all on their phones. No relationship is developed. No emotions are processed um, and what we're getting is a generation of kids that are disconnected from their emotions and therefore are not maturing in the way that they can manage those emotions as they become young adults. Um, so what do we do? What do we do as parents? We're in charge of creating the connection, making sure it happens. And it means spending time with and doing fun stuff with your kids from the beginning and continuing those habits and those activities throughout their lives that take them away from those screens. You know, find what your family likes to do together. My family likes to play pickleball now that we're all adults. <laughs> you know, I don't know if you know what pickleball is, but <laughs> it's kind of like tennis. And we used to play tennis. We used to play ping pong, you know, on the weekends and watch movies and go skiing. 
Yeah. Skiing was a big thing we did together as a family. Every family has something. Biking is a good one. Hiking, all kinds of things that bring you together. The phones are gone. Your parents are also needing to disconnect as well, by the way. You know, you're role modeling that sometimes, parents, when you're on your phone. Uh, toddlers notice, even two and three year olds notice when their mom's preoccupied and disconnected from them emotionally on the phone. Um, so keep that in mind that, that your kids are always watching everything that you do and they are learning from you from the beginning. So be aware of that piece as well when it comes to social media. Um, and I, you know, I can't emphasize this enough too. you know, nature, getting outside, moving some form of exercise regularly. It's so important for mental health. And then, of course, everyone talks about putting boundaries around the use. Um, please don't let your kids go to bed with their devices. I promise you they're up all night and they're engaging in things that will stimulate their brains, but numb their emotions. And in that effort, they lose that sleep hygiene, that, that really important hygiene that they need to function in school the next day. And that's, if, if anything, contributes to the downward cycle of mental health and balance and good good well-being it's that not sleeping all night and then having to get up and go to school they're not going to learn anything the next day <laughs> you know and the other really important piece for those those of you that are worried that your child is being sucked into the vortex i call it of social media and getting lost in it and and really addicted to it find out you know what it is that they like to do that when they're doing it they don't notice the passage of time I promise you, and it can't be video games, obviously, it needs to be something that truly engages them mentally, physically, creatively, something that when they're done doing it, they feel more energy, not less. And the way you can kind of convince your child of the difference is ask them, how do you feel when you've spent 10 hours playing video games versus how you feel when you've prepped for a major exam and you aced it. How do you feel at the end of that process? Where does self-esteem come from? It comes from hard work, effort, and achievement. We have to have our kids engaged with things that they love to do. It's self-motivating also, by the way. You'll see a, a child that, say, is passionate about, I had a child that loved the guitar. I never had to tell her to practice. She loved it. She was passionate about it, still plays today as a doctor, you know, on the side, she has a little band. And I think that, I think that when we find those things and, and they can be a multi, you know, a multi, it doesn't have to be your exact passion and purpose for the rest of your life. It can be what you're naturally good at. Maybe a natural talent will lead you somewhere or, um, you know, a natural tendency around maybe you your daughter loves children you know and that maybe it's showing you a direction toward teaching you know as a parent we need to look for those times when those kids are so engaged you can't pull them out of it other than of course social media things that truly you know capture their hearts and they can tell you usually whenever i ask a teenager what do you do that when you're doing it, you don't notice the passage of time. They usually have one specific thing they can point to. 
And parents, you just have to create as many opportunities and find peers that are also interested in that so they can do these things together and have a social connection with, you know, real live people in the world and real relationships. And those are the things that will prevent the disconnect and the, you know, the isolation, the loneliness that, that these kids ultimately end up with when they stay in their rooms and play video games or are on social media regularly. Great, definitely. So also just to understand, like uh, as a therapist and the author, what inspired you to write this book, uh, Raising a Resilient Family? Yeah, I saw families heal and get better. Like families that were in major crisis mode would come into this therapeutic boarding school and were poured into in terms of you know strategies and ideas and ways of being and ways of communicating. And they they took these techniques and they they applied them. <laughs> they made effort to change as parents the way that they were interacting with their children, and they really changed the whole dynamic of the family. And you saw it. I saw it right. It was it's this very intense process, but you saw true connection and healing and and the love that I know existed from the beginning, by the way. But you saw that emerge. In the, in the kids and the students that, you know, started respecting their parents again, started loving their parents again. And I talk about how that happens. It's, it's, really, it's really when the parent stops trying to control who that child needs to, needs to be in their mind and recognizing they're separate, they're individuals, they're unique. Sometimes our kids get involved with things we have no interest in. Sometimes their greatest passion is something we have no clue about. In, in my case, it happened with my son. I write about that in the book too. It, you know, he was involved with with something artistically that I just didn't get. <laughs> And he and my my husband had a major disconnect over it, and now you know that passion has ended up being his purpose and his life blood, I'll call it. And um, he, he comes alive when he's engaged in that. And you can see it. And it wasn't until we fully accepted it, you know, we stopped imposing our ideas about what he should do with his life. You know, you really need to go to college because everybody goes to college, you know, and he just had a thought and a mind of his own from the beginning, by the way, he was born this way. It was right in front of us the whole time. But we had an agenda. And I think it was because we worked at the school and we saw the damage that, you know, my way or the highway brings to a family, to an adolescent especially, they're telling you with their rebellion that you're not getting them at all. <laughs> you're not seeing them. You're not understanding them. And so, again, the way in is through those emotions, those those feelings that they're showing you you know demonstrate you're seeing them and i promise you they'll op- that will open the door to the deeper stuff wow that's great that's great <laughs> so thank you susan for sharing your expertise and shedding light on the importance of building the resilient families in our disconnected world so your insights and the practical strategies will undoubtedly resonate with our listeners and 
inspire the positive change within their own family dynamics. So I hope so. That's my goal. <laughs> That's my absolute goal. And yeah. inspire families to change and to Correct. to use use some of these ideas to connect yeah. in deeper ways. Exactly. So uh, exactly, Shrin, like as um, and for our listeners, like always remember that uh, building resilience and nurturing the connection within your family is an ongoing journey. So it takes time, effort, and the commitment to fostering the healthy relationships, but the rewards are immeasurable, right? So before we go, so when, like, uh, where can our listeners find more information about you and your work? Yes, the book, Raising a Resilient Family, can be found on Amazon and Audible. And then I have a website where you can contact me directly. It's called, it's www.raisingaresilientfamily.com. And there's contact, you know, sheets there. And, and you know, anyone that wants to write to me or talk to me or ask me questions, I do answer them personally. So feel free to do that if you have some thoughts about what I talked about today. Great, great. Fantastic. So thank you once again, Susan, for joining us today. And thanks for having me. And also for sharing your valuable insights. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in to this episode of Healthy Mind, Healthy Life. Uh, remember to prioritize connection, communication, and the resilience within your family as you navigate the challenges of our disconnected world. So until next time, take care and be well. Thank you so much.